Greetings, Earthlings. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Wichmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Rubelke. Avecha boy. Ward Bell. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick announcement, go check out Ruby Remote Conf if you're doing stuff with Ruby backends on your Angular apps, or if you're interested in learning stuff about that, then yeah, go check it out, rubyremoteconf.com. I've got some terrific people lined up, and it's going to be great, so... We also have a special guest this week, and that is Gleb Bamutov. Hi, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Whoa, Thanks whoa, for coming. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry, it's Dr. Gleb. Doctor. <laughs> Doctor's in the house, huh? PhD. Yeah, not MD. Yes. He has a master's degree in science? He, and then yeah, do- yeah, doctorate in computer science. I'm sorry, that was a bad joke to, to <laughs> Dr. Science, which was a radio show. <laughs> In which the guy says, Dr. Science, I have a master's degree in science. <laughs> so, Gleb, are you ever afraid that all the computer knowledge that you have is going to, like, ever tip over and crush somebody? Oh, no, like, no, no, Lucas. You know, the more I learn, the more I find out how much I don't know. You know, talk about oh. your imposter syndrome. <laughs> That's right. The more he pulls out of the box to count it, the emptier it gets. Exactly. Boom. Wow. We just got our money's worth. Let's go to the picks. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we brought you on to talk about Angular performance. Excellent. The topic is good, right? Everyone kind of keeps asking if Angular has performance problem. Everyone compares it to React or some smaller libraries, always complaining. So definitely a good topic to discuss. Yeah, do you have a sort of a general beef about people talking about performance like I do? Like, it just seems to me to be a word that you can smear something with. You know, security is another way. It's insecure. It's, it doesn't perform well that you can just smear something with. And I just wonder how you sort of couch 
performance, how you get people to think about what they really mean or even care about performance? It's an excellent question. And I think um, uh, Paul Irish at the last, uh, what was it, Fluent or Velocity Conference, he talked about perceptual. Perceptual? Speed. Yes, perceptual. So the way users perceive your website's performance might not necessarily be what you measure, right? One quick example, if you show the user a loading indicator, the users will perceive your website as being more performant as opposed to just, you know, simply waiting with no visual feedback. So, you know, it's a big fit change from just measuring, you know, end-to-wall loading time. We kind of talk about not even responsive design, but uh, incremental improvement design, right, where you show something to the user and then you progressively add more features. I think you can do pretty much everything we do today, and the user will perceive our websites as being much faster. Right, because we incrementally or progressively enhance the functionality. And Angular, I think, is incredibly well suited for this. Right. So you're keeping your eyes on the prize here in terms of, you know, who benefits from what level of performance instead of getting lost in micro benchmarks, which is where I think a lot of this ends up. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if you read my blog post on performance, I always argue against using benchmarks or micro benchmarks. I mean, they're good for some things. But in terms of a real-world application website, I think they're useless pretty much. Well, I found that users use really highly quantifiable and scientific terms like slow. <laughs> exactly. They do use quantifiably slow, right? Yeah. And, and, and not usually, as slow sometimes. They usually have a point. They've got some workflow in mind, some scenario that they're trying to get through. And they perceive getting through that scenario is being important to them and too slow. To me, that's the starting place. Then I can get out my stopwatch and start looking at the scenario and seeing what it is that we're doing that gives them that perception. And that, you know, I, I like to work from that user back, and I have a feeling that's your point too, Glenn. Yes, and recently I actually spoke to Web Performance Meetup at Boston, and a person from the audience asked exactly the same question. You know, how do you know when you should optimize performance and how do you know when you should stop optimizing performance, right? Because you can keep going on forever, right? And I always go back to the user and ask, well, you go through this particular scenario. How long do you think it should take? What's acceptable to you? Is it five seconds to do a search? Is it one second? Is it 100 milliseconds, right? And if the user tells me five seconds is acceptable, usually I'm done. If a user you know, asks for two seconds, then I optimize until I hit two seconds. It's always up to the user to tell me what's acceptable and what the performance target should be. I think that's really interesting, but how do you get that kind of feedback? Because most of the time, at least in web applications, I mean, your users are somewhere else in the world. They come to your website, they load it up, they do their thing, and they disappear. And, you know, they're... I don't see it like a, a slam dunk place for them to say, hey, this was slow. It's a valid question, right? And, and it varies. I'm lucky to work at a company where we have internal users of our web app. And these are the people who usually approach me and they tell us, hey, can you speed up this particular thing? Or, hey, we have more data now. So this particular app that used to behave very well now seems sluggish. So we have this in-house feedback constantly. And we are always surprised, actually, when we actually show to the outside users 
but they don't find the, our performance problems to be an issue. We actually judge ourselves harder than outside users do. If you have a completely different case, if you have users worldwide, then you probably can look at secondary metrics, like how many users started doing something and then close the browser without letting it finish, right? Like kind of drop off. How um, many people give up? Exactly, gave up, right? And Google always kind of posts this number saying, or Amazon like saying every 200 milliseconds and waiting is 5% drop off, right? So you can kind of in general judge basic metrics. Like if, if, you're loading. if you're building that kind of site, you know, exactly. words, if you're yeah. building a shopping site, but if I'm building, you know, an internally facing app and a lot of Angular apps are these kind of like I'm trying to get work done kind of apps. Exactly. And then, you know, those numbers are kind of meaningless and you don't have to worry about them walking away because it takes longer to load because they are in it anyway. That's where they're going to be sitting. This isn't an option for them. So you're trying more to optimize whether they can get their work done. Right, Clem? Right. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of apps that we write are you know, web apps that replace desktop software. Right. So on one hand, let's say as a web developer, you sometimes are hostage to clients' demands, like IE6 support, for example, but at the same time, the client is a little bit of a hostage to your application. So sometimes a little bit of waiting and putting premium features rather than performance is the right thing to do. So how do you make that call? You have to ask the user, right? You, mm -hmm. Usually, you know, so let's say we are a startup and, you know, I'm at a startup that's less than two years old. For us, the number of features is definitely number one priority, right? Finding the features that the customer is willing to pay for. Now, being, you know, from multiple iterations, we started getting, you know, recurring revenue, and now we're hitting larger data sets, and now we're hitting performance problems. So in a sense, we always put the feature first, and we approach performance optimization lazily. That means we're not going to do anything until it becomes a problem. Kind of stop premature performance optimization. So let's say then that we have a scenario where our users are coming to us and they're saying, this process is really slow. Right. I try and load up this page, it's really slow. Or I enter data in this form and it's really slow. What do you do? Where do you start? I try to observe them, you know, perform the task first, right? I don't even look at any metrics. I just try to figure out what they're trying to do. Usually the user will do something that will surprise you, right? You assume that they'll look at, let's say, 10 items, and all of a sudden you notice that they try to load the whole world, for example. So what the user is experiencing might be completely different from what you expect them to do. Second, there are two categories of performance problems. One is common to every HTTP website, right? And that means... You have to download JavaScript, you have to download uh, CSS, you have to download HTML, all the resources, fonts, and render things. And this is an interesting problem because we're trying to optimize milliseconds, right, for example. Mm -hmm. But the common HTTP problems in an order of seconds, right, so it's not Angular-specific. Being able to deliver your scripts or CSS or fonts for CDN is common to every application or library framework. So that's where I would start, you know, and tools like page test or Yslow, right, are great at this. Performance audits. And these are not Angular-specific issues. 
where Angular-specific issues come into play is probably the secondary stage, where a user is actually trying to use the web app and do specific scenario. At that point, I would bring up my little uh, collection of code snippets. So Angular is actually a good framework for profiling, right? You can get into the scope, you can wrap any scope method in a time measurement code, you can accurately record starting, like end-to-end timings. You can also control Chrome CPU profiler and get accurate picture of all your bottlenecks. It's a little bit more involved, but if you know what you're doing, Angular gives you a great amount of information or allows you to get into great detail via DevTools profiling. So that's my go-to step for profiling Angular apps. Do you have some kind of link that we can put in the show notes to sort of get people clued in to the techniques and tools you use? Absolutely. So I have a whole repo of uh, Chrome code snippets. If you search for GitHub Chrome snippets, you'll find me as a like, second link there. I'll, I'll definitely send you a link to the repo. I also have blog posts that describe how to do this in detail, you know, what code snippets are. A lot of people actually don't know about Chrome snippets. I only found out about them accidentally a few months ago. These are little, almost like bookmarklets, but they're permanently stored. Yes, that's the one. Permanently stored in a Chrome DevTools. They're stored inside the local storage there. And so you can write a whole bunch of code that's syntax highlighted, is saved, you can execute it in the context of a page, it has full access to all the libraries, you know, the DOM, everything. It's almost as if you passed it with code into the browser console. In my collection of code snippets, I have general ones, and I also have Angular-specific ones. For example, you know, getting a scope of an element and then wrapping a method on that scope in a profiling code, and then Whenever you execute that method, it actually profiles just that method. So really getting specific information about a particular feature of your model rather than you know, clicking profile button, going to your code, or going to your app, clicking a button, going back to the Chrome DevTools, you know, hitting stop, which you know, makes your measurements a lot less accurate. That sounds really cool. i got to go check that link out. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, I've been using them, you know, very successfully to optimize the performance. And, you know, funny thing, and I always say this, whenever I try to profile my application and I look at the list of heavy functions, right, uh, the bottlenecks, like all the functions arranged in the amount of time that they take to execute, 9 out of 10, the top couple bottlenecks will not be Angular code, not be the digest cycle, nothing. It'll be my own application code. Maybe I implemented some weird search or any kind of brute force method. I always find that to be the first problem. So a lot of people blame Angular, but if they profile what actually executes, they'll find their own code at the top of a list. Right, and so React wouldn't have fixed that, or anything else wouldn't have fixed that, or might not have fixed that. And if they switch over to it and say, look how that cured my problem, they actually probably rewrote the algorithm and they weren't giving themselves the same problem in the first place. Uh, absolutely. So, and it's not, I'm not picking on React. 
React is a fine library, and there are lots of fine libraries for optimizing the dumb updates. But most of the times, the amount of code that you write, the custom code that's not really performance tested, is far, far greater for your particular application and dominates the performance rather than fine-tuned, you know, battle-tested, battle-hardened framework like Angular or React even. Yeah, yeah. I want to sort of just clarify and, and agree with you there. What, what I'm seeing, and probably you've seen it too, is that people get into performance problems and they think it's their framework, so they jump from one framework to another and they say, see how that framework was better than the earlier one? And then they get into problems with that one and then they jump to another one and say they, they do all of this performance-driven framework jumping instead of looking to see what they did. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the first rule of performance optimization is measure and find what you have to optimize, right? Find the true bottleneck. Without measuring accurately your application, any type of editing, refactoring will be in vain. That's why I always try to profile accurately, and code snippets is one useful tool. But also, I usually concentrate on the top bottleneck. Because anything but the very top one or two bottlenecks will probably not give me the biggest bang for my time. And also, if I remove a top bottleneck, it usually changes the order of our functions and how long they take. So usually I concentrate just on the slowest part of my code. You know, that sounds yeah. so simple, but so few people do it. They go for the easy fix somewhere down low because they know how to fix it. And right. That is just such wise advice, Glenn. Well, the other thing that strikes me is, do you know what the Pareto's principle is? Uh, I think so. Can you remind me of that? It's 80% oh. 80 of oh, your... Yes. It's the 80-20 rule, basically. Right. So 80% of your problems caused by 20% of your code. And so when you're saying the top two or top three things are making the difference, yeah, the 20% of the things that are slowing things down right there are causing 80% of the slowdowns. And right. so you get rid of those, and the other things may not even make enough of a blip for you to worry about them right away. Absolutely. And if you think about framework jumping, for example, you can say that using immutable data optimize the performance, right? Especially in Angular, you know, it kind of eliminates the dirty checking in a digest cycle, which is great. But imagine how much effort it will actually take to rewrite your application to use immutable data. And at the end of the day, you might find that it hasn't actually sped up your application because it wasn't a true bottleneck. That's the effort wasted right there. We always say that we cannot measure productivity of a developer, right? At least we claim whenever someone tries to measure us. But performance is all about measuring first. Mm -hmm. Like This is one thing that developers can measure accurately, and that's the one thing they usually don't measure at all before starting refactoring. <laughs> that is so true, I can't tell you how often I've had the exact same experience, and then there's some manager behind them who comes beating you over the head and tells you it's not performing too. Yeah. Too funny. It's only funny because it's almost like gallows humor, right? It's it's funny mm -hmm. because it's true and it's it's a problem. But you know, the Chrome DevTools, and as much as I loved uh, Firebug before, I'm absolutely astonished by how good the Chrome DevTools are, you know, and what features they put in, including you know layers and you know frame by frame paintings and. Uh, you know, memory profilers, it's astonishing. It's the best debugger for performance that one can have. I just think it's funny, too. You talked about the manager breathing down your neck. About half of the jobs that I've had over the last 
I don't know, eight or nine years that I've been a professional developer, the only machine that it really mattered how it performed on was the CEOs. <laughs> exactly. And right. you know, if it was slow for him or if he ran into a hiccup, the thing was broken and you had to convince him that you fixed it. Right, right. And usually a CEO has this underpowered kind of light MacBook Air right. machine, right? So it's not, and maybe not the latest browser. Yep. So it's, uh, yeah, it's always a problem. The only piece of advice I can give there is that as a good programming practice or as a good software engineering, we know that we have to write unit tests. We know that we have to have a version control system. We know that we have to have continuous integration build system. I think we should add fourth step and that is automatic performance benchmarks, right? Like measuring our application performance. So it's like Angular Bench Press. There are other tools, but we should make it a part of our build process. Yeah, but you just said that the benchmarks don't mean as much because people perceive speed. They don't right, actually not, measure not, it. Not the micro bench, benchmarks, right? More like, imagine almost like a protractor end-to-end test and measuring how long it takes in reality, right? Or measuring most critical features of our application. That kind of benchmarks. Not the micro benchmarks or it, or something like this. Yeah, and I guess if you can measure someone's perception, so you're getting a wide sampling of this page or this feature is really slow, and then you have a benchmark that goes along with it, then you can say it has to be faster than this. Right, right, right. And we always say that, you know, first step is measuring performance or measuring the relevant metric, and maybe the second step should be automating and making this measurement as simple as possible. Again, like the Chrome DevTools snippets are just excellent because they're there. So anytime you want to measure something, just open and run the script. You don't have to type anything. You know, usually you can just store it. Mm-hmm. And they can also auto-update themselves. So you can kind of have a company-wide private repository with code snippets that are specific to your application. And you can just auto-update them periodically. So every developer will be able to profile your application uh, easily. So if you're profiling the speed of your application automatically like that, how do you extract value from that? As uh, like simple numbers? No. So you have the measurements on how long it takes to load on average, you know, each piece or each at least critical piece of your application. So how do you take that and actually make decisions based on those numbers? Now that's a judgment called, right? Um, so let's say that, your performance budget has been exceeded, right? So you went to a user and a specific feature has to take five seconds and it takes 10, right? Well, right away you have to look at bottlenecks. You have to look, take a look at maybe amount of data. But the next thing you can do, right, is actually solve the problem. And, you know, let's say you removed your own bottlenecks in your own code, right? So the top bottleneck is no longer your code, it's probably something Angular-related or Angular-specific. I want to put pressure on that because sometimes I find that the problem is that the UI is inappropriately designed for the task. (laughs) It could be. Yeah, and so, you know, there's not a chance, like somebody thought that this is the way the UI ought to be, and there's not a chance in the world that you can actually implement that UI in an effective way, and it's not serving the user in the first place. So you can make big gains by simply saying, hey, what are you doing? Don't, you know, it's it's like hitting yourself in the head in the hammer. What's the answer to that? Stop hitting yourself in the head. Right. 
uh, again, it's it's all about measurement. So you can measure, like, let's say the UI has lots of items and they all have trans- semi-transparent background and they all have, you know, shadows and stuff like that that makes painting the screen, you know, just a chore, right? And the performance suffers. You can profile the paint. You can bring this result back to your team and saying, hey, you know, we just a sheer amount of data we're repainting because of all the visual styles does not allow us to achieve, you know, the magic 60 frames per second. Maybe we can drop the semi-transparency. It's a nice feature to have, but it really slows us down. Maybe we can drop the shadows. Maybe we can have fewer items on a page using pagination or, you know, having just a few items in a DOM that are visible, right? And if, if a user scrolls, we can bring more items. And one thing that's really nice about Angular is that you can do a lot of these performance optimizations while staying inside the Angular application, you know, ecosphere, like updating DOM and only keeping visual things. You know, there is an Angular plugin for that called Angular versus Repeat. Just keeps uh, a list and only the visible items will be in a DOM. So you can have an, a list and, you know, regular ng repeat with 10,000 items but have like 60 frames per second because only, you know, how many items that are actually visible will be in a DOM. So you can do a lot of things without going to third-party tools. What what was that thing again that you are just describing, Glenn? It's called Angular-versus, like VS-repeat, which is kind of cool Angular directive. It keeps only the visible items in, in the DOM, and as you scroll, it adds new items, before you know you reach the end, and whatever scrolls outside are, is removed. Yes, that's the one. You you have a right link, so you can do things like this. As we were hitting performance problem at my company, I've been kind of solving each bottleneck, and there is a blog post that kind of kept growing and growing, and now has maybe eleven or fifteen separate sections and things that I optimized. As you think of the dragons you've slayed at your company, what would be the top things that you keep running into? And they may or may not be Angular related, but what are the top, the things that you just keep seeing over and over again that are kind of reliable, go-to, fix that kind of things? Well, unfortunately, the top two or three are are definitely Angular related, but they are very easy to fix. So one is two-way binding, right? As the number of items on the page grows, let's say you have a table and you used to handle maybe 100 items, now you have 20 columns and 10,000 items, as we found ourselves. The two-way binding is really expensive. Well, luckily, you know, Angular has one-way binding now. You can just switch to that and your performance will increase dramatically. So that's the most common thing that we did and it optimized the performance, slayed the dragon right away. The second one, easy Angular dragon to slay, is keep updating your version. So between 1.0 and 1.2, there is a huge performance improvement. And also between version 1.2 and 1.3 or 1.4, there is another huge performance jump. So by just keeping up to date with the latest Angular version, not even going to Angular.2 or beta, beta, you can get performance improvements for free. So that's probably our number two solution. And number three that's also pretty easy to solve is minimize the number of expressions in each 
template element. So Angular makes it very easy for you to apply functions to your template expressions, right? You can take a number, style it, uh, format it, and it's very easy to add those things. But every time the page refreshes, it has to go through every filter, every expression. And this is expensive, as you have more items. But it's incredibly easy to actually move that code into the controller and not run it on every digest cycle. So basically, pre-compute all the values in your model and have maybe one-way or two-way very simple data binding. This solves a lot of problems. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Every time I see people litter those filter pipes in the template, I know they're in, inside an ng-repeat. I know they're in trouble. Exactly. So I kind of, based on my experience with improving uh, Angular, have written Angular performance lessons, and it only includes like eight um, of, or ten. Do you mind if I share those? Yeah, go ahead. We always talk about this, but micro-benchmarks do not matter. So some people will argue that writing four loops everywhere rather than using array you know, for each is better performing, but don't, don't even try optimizing those parts. You have to learn how to accurately profile your code, and you know, Chrome DevTools is an excellent resource. Upgrading a framework gives you performance improvements. Minimizing number of watchers by you know, using um, pre-compute expressions or minimizing two-way binding expression is the key. Another interesting thing is that Angular makes it very, very easy, in my opinion, to use web workers. You can write a little factory to create web workers on demand. There is an excellent project called ng-webworkers, I believe, that makes using a function, a standalone function, in a separate web worker just a snap. So if you have computation, Offload that to a web worker, right? Pre-compute all the values before you put it in your model on, and onto the scope in a separate thread. That's an excellent, excellent idea. And you can batch up, you know, large work into smaller chunks and just parallelize it easily. You can get on a typical laptop up to a factor of three or four speed up if you have a, a lot of data computation. So work in batches. And now, um, is, yes. is the web, what's the browser support for web workers like? It's like 95% right now. It pretty much everything supports it. And the cool thing about NG Web Worker project, it creates web worker on demand, so dynamically. So if it doesn't find support, you can still use that function inline, right, in the main thread. So it's not, you know, neither no proposition or, or either or. You can use both. But I think web workers are really well supported by now. What kinds of calculations are you talking about that might, you know, that everyday people would have heard about? I don't mean the weather or, you know, shortest route to getting home by way of the the customers I have to visit. I mean, those things are out there. But what kinds of things are garden variety things that people would understand that would go well in a web worker? (laughs) So aside from my kind of standard example for showing web workers like finding primes or factorials, which I'm, I know everyone does every day. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> we do a lot of formatting and chart pre-processing and computing like standard deviations and binning and histograms before we show the charts and graphs and tables on the data we receive from the server. So for us, you know, offloading the pre-computation to a web worker is very, very simple. Other people might Think of problems like applying image filters, right, or doing any kind of image manipulation as an excellent candidate 
for working in a separate thread. Right now, the last thing that I optimized was a, you know, kind of hackathon project from Airbnb that I've seen. It takes any image and converts it into a Lego, right, map. So you can uh, buy a bunch of Lego, you know, pieces and make your own portrait. So that's an excellent candidate for, you know, working in a, in a separate thread. In general, I think we're not using the multiple threads in a browser. It's been a little bit too hard to actually set up, you know, communication and pass data. But the current web worker technology, especially with transferable objects, where you don't have to even marshal things into JSON, is super fast. And I think in the future we'll take great advantage of this browser technology. As far as Angular is related, I even have a project where I run, I think, Angular 1.4 inside a separate web worker, like the whole framework. And um, my goal was to optimize the performance. You know, the Dave Smith uh, talk, Angular plus React equals love from ng-conf. If you've seen the presentation, basically, imagine you have to update a lot of stuff. Wouldn't be nice if you could run the digest cycle in a separate thread, right? And be able to use your application, and then once the model is updated, then you get results back. You can do this, but... Did that actually pay off? You know, it's funny you should ask. No, it does not pay off, and I'll tell you why. Angular is really tied to the DOM, right? Think of, you know, your link function or your directives. You can grab the element itself, the DOM element, and attach listeners and do all sorts of interesting stuff, Right? You, you can access attributes, and that's how you link scopes, and so on. If you run Angular in a web worker, right, you don't have DOM. So you have to use a synthetic DOM, like JS DOM. And now those things are really slow, right? So you can do your MVC and digest cycle very quickly. But because the whole Angular setup and bootstrapping happens to be tied with a DOM, because of synthetic DOM, that's a part that slows things down. Just running, you know, a calculation or digest cycle is very fast. But the initial bootstrap is still terribly slow. So it's uh, still work in progress. I'm sure that Angular 2 will actually work much better. Oh, at least I hope. Hmm. We live in exciting times, I think. What's your general sense? Is it that Angular apps are generally fast enough and that people are having performance problems at the edges? Or are people just hyperventilating about how dangerous it is or or what? What's your sense of the true state of performance characteristics of Angular apps? There's a broad question for you. It's a broad question and it's definitely an opinion question. I would say what people complain because there is a reason to complain. And it's a good reason, actually. A bunch of frameworks never even hit performance problems because the usage and the adoption rate is so small. And, you know, the real-world examples that they run on are pretty much to-do MVC examples with a couple of items. Angular, because of its wide adoption, is actually used in so many applications today that the real-world usage hits the edge cases with where you have to show a lot of data. You have to update a lot of data. So the people complain because the real-world usage of Angular forces performance problems or, you know, spotlights them. On the other hand, I don't think the complaint Angular is slow is fair. Angular is almost like a guitar amplifier. It has a knob. 
So if a knob is set to 1, it's really easy to take a static page, add a couple of tags, and you have a live web app. It's ridiculously easy, right? That's why we love Angular. It's great for prototyping. I can take a static mock-up page, and I'll make it on the app in a couple of minutes, hours. doesn't really matter. Any UI designer can take, whoever can create the static mock-up can make an Angular app out of it. So this is now one. But then people start using it more and more, and all of a sudden you hit problems. Well, you can turn the knob and remove two-way binding, right? Kind of restrict the app, you know, maybe target it better to specific use case, and you get much better performance. So people complain, you turn the knob, you solve the complaint. People complain a little bit more because now they have more data, more users, and more edge cases, and you can turn the knob even more. You can pre-compute the data. You can minimize the number of watchers. You can stop using, I don't know, jQuery you know, plugins to give extra behavior. You can really tie down your application to your specific use case and make it very, very fast again. So when people complain that it's slow, yes, it can be slow because you started from a static page, you added behavior, now you're using that behavior with lots of data, but it's ridiculously easy to turn the knob and solve the performance problem at the cost of a little bit of programming. So that's my broad answer, if you can accept it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And of course, with a guitar knob, I always turn to 11, but that's just me. <laughs> yes, so <laughs> 11 would be kind of going to immutable data structure, right? Maybe swapping to a binding for for something else, maybe dropping, uh, you know, things and going to Angular 2, right? That's the 11. But again, at, at the cost of a lot of programming, right? Angular is ridiculously easy to pick up if you're a designer, if you start with HTML and CSS and then add live behavior. I can teach pretty much any designer to do this very quickly. Now, trying to explain to designer how to start with even JSX, or React, or something like Backbone, or Ampersand, is a lot harder. I might get better performance from from the start, but it will take me a lot longer to train and to write the app. And, you know, if you're a startup and you're hunting for a feature to sell, ability of Angular to actually deliver very quickly a working application and then being able to show it, to prototype, to up, change it before you actually worry about performance knob and turning it to 11, it, to me it's a killer feature. This is like progressive performance. Yeah, that and trying to keep the UI simple, yeah. which, by the way, I think gives the users a break too because having everything flashing all over the place yeah. or giving them a, a table that's a 1,000 rows by 50 columns is not doing the user any favor. Nope. That's just abdicating. Exactly. No, it, you should do a better job probably when designing your application and showing the user the important stuff, right? We follow this a lot in our visual design. Instead of you know, telling the user, here are 10,000 items, find what's important to you. We'll try to show 10 items that we think might be important and let the user focus on those. But that means you have to know your app, you, know, you have to know your audience, and you have to be good at what you do. Yeah, I really think that there is no 
getting around that. In some sense, that giant grid is the way in which people have tried to run away from the fact that they actually have to understand the user and understand the application. And exactly. laying that at the feet of Angular or any, or hoping that some framework is going to rescue from that is going to end up with a design that actually is slow for the user, not because the app can't perform, but because the user just can't move through right. the app in a, a crisp way. Right. And, you know, let's talk about a little bit about mobile and tablet, right? So the world is moving towards mobile. You know, limited real estate on your screen. You do have to be an expert as a designer or application programmer. And being an expert means you can make a judgment call. What's important and what you want to show on that limited screen space. So to me the mark of a good mobile application or tablet application is not that I fit everything and show the same behavior as my desktop app, right? No, the mark is that you, I'm showing only the most important stuff. I, I'm making you know, a conscious decision, but this is important to my user and everything else can just be hidden and not shown at all. So I think that's where you have to move to. And the framework makes it really simple to do this. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, thank you, guys. I also do what I call uh, drive-by optimizations. So sometimes I look at someone's library or project and I will say, hey, this kind of feels slow. Let me take a look, right? And, you know, you open it in, in Chrome Profiler, you take a quick look around, you look at bottlenecks, you see if it's a framework, could be Angular, could be something else. You see if it's their algorithm or you see if it's a JavaScript engine which is something we have not mentioned, right? A lot of stuff cannot be optimized you know, by just-in-time compiler in JavaScript, and that's another huge source of uh, performance improvements. For example, every time you use a try-catch block, that function will be slow, right? And Chrome profile will show you know, a big warning sign there, but you, you have to know the rules of uh, JavaScript engines. And again, profiling gives you a nice view of it. You're talking try-catch in a, in a hot loop, right? I mean, it's generally... You, yes, have, to, you, have, to, you right. have to have a lot of iterations before a try-catch gives you trouble. Yes, but if you, for example, profile an Angular app, because the try-catch is inside the digest cycle, right? Sometimes you see it, you know, it's like somewhere in the middle of all, all the list of functions, and you, you, you have... I, I usually don't pay attention to the digest cycle, try-catch, but you should just know that it should not be inside you know, the hot function. So are you really expecting Angular 2 to be uh, make big difference in performance for people? Or I mean, what's the trade-off there with development ease? I mean, what's, your, what's your feeling about Angular 2 and performance? So you know, I've been looking at Victor Safkin's blog post about change detection in Angular. And the last weekend's Angie Vegas has excellent talk by... Minko Genev from Bulgaria, I believe, who showed you know, very nice immutable data structure and how it can actually be integrated into Angular. It remains to be seen. Angular 2 is a huge moving target right now, so we don't know what's going to happen. At my company, we're kind of looking long-term, and we have decided we're going to adopt ES6 syntax. We probably will stay away from TypeScript for now, and we probably will not, you know, jump onto Angular 2 anytime soon. We still will use Angular 1 for quite a while. So in terms of Angular 2 performance, it remains to be seen. 
I think the best parts of Angular 2 will be brought back into Angular 1, honestly. Just like, you know, ng-router and things like that. So maybe dependency injection. So I think some kind of maybe performance optimization, like immutable data structures, probably will be ported back to Angular 1. But it remains to be seen. Well, I don't have any other questions. Do you, Ward? I don't, not at this level. I mean, I, you know, what I'd love is to watch Lab at work tearing into something. I always find that fascinating. But I think you've really covered some of the important ground here, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ward. It's been a pleasure being here, and we can share a couple of my blog posts where I take a specific application, and I profile it, and then I remove bottleneck one at a time. So I have a couple of blog posts like that. So that kind of gives an idea how I do this. So we can definitely share it with our audience. Oh, that's, that would be great. that's gold. That's gold. Yeah, yeah seeing, seeing it in the real world, it just takes it from that place where it's... That's a nice theory, you know, to... Oh, I have this exact same problem in my application. Or I have code that looks a lot like that. And boom. Yes, yes. It's definitely a learning experience. You have to look at what other people are doing, right? And, you know, learn from them. It's, it's hard to optimize your application... In production, right? You have to practice on our projects, I think. Yeah. I'm going to throw in one of my favorite performance techniques, which is videoing the user at work. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, you know, just watch them go when you have the luxury of doing that and watch them use the interface to accomplish a task the way they think they're doing it and the way they've always felt it should be done is mind-boggling. They do stuff, you just wonder how how you set it up so that they did it that way, and you start getting all kinds of great ideas about how you could make a difference there. And I'm sure you've had that experience, Gleb, and I think there's also a misunderstanding about the difference between designing a UI for the newbie or casual user and then for the, the person who's sitting in front of it all day long. Right. And there's no reason to inflict the same view for the task on both of those people at the same time. So like if I'm doing payroll entry and it's a heads down keyboard thing, that's a completely different user interaction than if I'm going in to make a configuration adjustment, which I never do. Right. Anytime, you know, you have a chance to observe your user and interact and actually see them, use your application, you should jump on the chance and and see and, and be as nice and as you know, polite and, you know, almost like a sponge. Listen, observe, right, and learn. Like, it's a great chance. Even if they're doing it wrong. Even if they're doing it wrong. They do it wrong for a reason, right? Yep. It's not their fault if they're doing it wrong. But Unless a lot you're of times, Steve Jobs yeah. and they're holding it wrong. Well, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right. No, no Steve Jobs here. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Ward, do you have some picks for us? Oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm pickless today. No, that means I have to do like 10 zillion picks to make you up for everybody to... being gone. Yeah, well, what can I tell you, my friend? This flu I've got has completely erased my brain. Oh, wow. That's a real virus. All right, let's see. I do have some picks, actually. So the first one is a podcast. It's done by a friend of mine, Saran. And she hosts a podcast called the Code Newbie Podcast. And... Despite what it sounds like, she talks to some pretty experienced people about some pretty deep stuff. And I highly recommend, if you're a developer, to go listen to it. 
there's just all kinds of great stuff. I'm right in the middle of the March ones, which were Marches for Makers. So she's talking to people who do hardware hacking, you know, Raspberry Pi, Arduino, that kind of stuff. Great stuff. And she just talks to all kinds of people. Uh, Scott Hanselman has been on there a few times. I mean, I just can't say enough good things about that show. It's just awesome. I want to remind everybody that I am doing the Ruby Remote Conf. Um, If you're wondering when I'm going to get around to an Angular Remote Conf, stay tuned. And then I'm going to pick a few others that are just kind of favorites. There's a podcast, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me by NPR, which is freaking hilarious. Yep. And they make fun of all kinds of news related stuff and it is just funny another one along the same veins that's kind of word puzzles and stuff is ask me another and that's also npr and that one's a lot of fun and then i'm just going to plug real quick we do have other shows on this network there are four other shows and then i'm starting up a video series on ruby on rails so the first one that we started was actually ruby rogues and uh, the next one that we started after that was javascript jabber which I think is pretty relevant to this. Joe Eames is actually on that show as a regular. JavaScript Jabber, incidentally, accounts for half, about half of the podcast downloads between all of the shows that I'm involved with. And then, obviously, we do Adventures in Angular. And then I have a show on freelancing called The Freelancer Show and iFreaks, which is about iOS development. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, go to devchat.tv and check it out. And then I am going to be launching Rails Clips, which is going to have its first videos come out next week, which is going to be this week or a week ago because we're a few weeks ahead. Anyway, it should be out by the time this show comes out. So go check it out, railsclips.com. That'll also take you to devchat.tv. But anyway, that should give you some idea on uh, some of the things we do around here and some of the things I'm involved with. So thank you, Ward, for letting me toot my horn. Gleb, what are your picks? So first of all, I love Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's a great podcast. I like to listen you know, religiously. On a similar vein, if you've never listened to Car Talk, it's unbelievable. It ran for a long time from Boston. It's just two mm-hmm. brothers discussing car problems and you know answering people's questions. So hilarious. It's it's. Didn't they it's have fantastic. nicknames like Clank and Clack or something? Exactly. Like, click, and yes. clack, click and Clack. And it one is. of them just died, and uh-huh. it's yeah, a sad yeah. thing. It's a sad thing. They were like right here in Cambridge, down the street from uh, Harvard Square. I have a peak, and that's my you know kind of collection of learning resources. Basically, newsletters, books, whatever you know, I received like regularly to keep me up to date. And then the, the second, um, I know resource, a good podcast that should be on there. It should be, right? I, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, to be honest, so I apologize. But I actually, when I work, I prefer music with no words. I cannot concentrate on typing and thinking and l- listening to podcasts. It might be English as a second language kind of thing. But the tool I highly recommend, I love Sublime, and I recommend to installing Color Sublime, and that allows you to literally like flip through any color theme like at the push of a button and find a, a new color theme right away. And what I usually do to get my creativity going, whenever I switch between like different projects, even like in the middle of the day, I will pick a new theme. And, you know, I honestly believe that switching colors, you know, kind of helps me reset my internal clock. So highly recommend this for Sublime users. Oh, you are so funny. <laughs> I, I thought that my clothing was funny, but that's funny. <laughs> no, I honestly, like, sometimes I start to start a project, I will move to a new desk, and I'll roam around the office. You literally have to kind of find yourself in a new environment, look at a different font size, maybe font color, to kind of start fresh. 
And before I forgot, Ken Siddharth, who has Angular Formula project, asked me actual question to answer at this podcast. Uh, he had, you know, kind of delay when loading lots of forms, and he has excellent project, right, that generates forms. One performance pattern that I found to be a problem in Angular, just as a last tip, is if you have a long promise chain, whenever you bootstrap, it actually creates a noticeable delay. Because every, you know, step in a promise chain has to wait its turn, right? Kind of do it on the next uh, iteration of event loop. So whenever you use a lot of promise chains, do not use them inside your link function or, you know, maybe control initialization. Kind of use them in a normal uh, methods, but not at the startup. Sorry. Right. but <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, so these are the only uh, two picks, I guess, I have. It's all good. Yeah, I forgot to ask Kent's question. Yeah, yeah, just remembered. Kent, if you're listening to this, I owe you lunch. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you for coming, Gleb. Oh, thank you, Chuck, and thank you, Ward. I appreciate talking to you guys. If people want to follow you on Twitter or get in touch with you, what are the ways to do that? Follow me on Twitter at my last name, Bakhmutov. I also have a website with all my you know, open source tools. Basically, if you search under my name, you'll find me right away. Yep, and if you're wondering how to spell that, you can come find it on the website. Uh, yes. Exactly. I take it, Gleb, that you're busy all the time. You're not farming yourself out, are you? Uh, farming in, in terms like... Um, consulting, consulting for people. I do uh, sometimes, but it's very few hours. So mostly just performance reviews. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks again, and we'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 